I want to start over. <laughs> I feel like I'm just introing it so awkwardly. So, Sarah, we talked about on the last podcast, we had sort of like an ombudsman sort of situation where I was being advised on how to do podcasting better. I heard it. Oh, so you heard it. You heard us talking about how to intro you. Yeah. And now you're hearing that I've been moment dying going. To, I've, I've been <laughs> living in anticipation of what this was going to be. And it, it is terrible, apparently. And then, it's completely and then and right before it started, you were like, hey, how do you want me to introduce you? <laughs> do it again! Do it again! Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars. Winners hang with winners. Si un jour tu m'emmènes à la plage, j'aimerais t'en plonger dans les fers. Je te promets que je resterai sage. Mais tu ne comprends pas que je rêve de ça. Welcome to the House of Strauss. We are joined by Sarah Heppela, New York Times bestselling author, podcaster working on a new book and I'm trying to do a better job of setting the stage for the audience comes to who I'm speaking with and let's do it here. Sarah, you wrote this incredible memoir, but it was back in 2016. So obviously um, I did not catch it at the time because all I was doing was beat reporting and following the Golden State Warriors around. Um, I recall it coming out because you were you were my boss at Salon.com, though you were across the country. I was in the San Francisco office. I'd never met you. I'd never met you in yeah. person. You, yeah, I've ne- I've yet to meet you in person as well. Um, and so, but I remembered you. I, I remembered you well. Um, I think better than you probably remembered me because I was this just pissant intern. So if anybody, if anybody shows you any kind of humanity or has any interaction with you that indicates that you are an autonomous human being. It's it's very memorable when you're in that position. And I recalled this conversation I had with you, and I don't even know what precipitated it. I think it was when, when Adam Carolla, the radio yeah. host slash podcaster, he had already become D class A in a place like salon.com. I don't know if he was if he had made a shift to explicitly on the right or if he was on Fox News regularly back then. I just, I remember that he did, he did something on how women aren't funny, right? I mean, that sounds like it would be in his wheelhouse, but I did not even know about that. Um, But I just remember we got into a conversation where you and I kind of metaphorically looking around and going, yeah, he's a very talented improvisational radio host. And I, I feel like I don't I don't want to dismiss that I know that. And I feel like everybody else has to pretend otherwise. And I remembered that conversation with you. It, it was uh, a moment of grounding for me because I had been at Salon for like seven years at that point. And I had gone from, you know, starting there and being like, these are my people to like seven years later being like, I don't think I belong here. You know, like, mm. I don't think that my, like, salon had changed, but I had changed. And uh, I had started listening to Adam Carolla's podcast. I, I was very new to podcasts. Ricky Gervais was the first one I had ever listened to. And then probably the second or third was Adam Carolla. And I found him really funny. And I was very invigorated by listening to somebody that I didn't necessarily dis- agree with all the time. Because I found his ideas very interesting. And I didn't really think about what it said about me that I liked it. I thought I was cool just listening to this new thing called a podcast. Um, And then all of a sudden, it was sort of like 
Rodo Joe Rogan, you started mm. to see this drumbeat of like, oh, that guy. Oh, if you the only people that listen to that guy, you know, you, you people would say things in meetings like only idiots listen to that guy. And I'd be like, um, yeah. um, <laughs> so I have a very specific memory of talking to you on the phone and the two of us bonding over the fact that we listened to him. Funny enough, um, the other person around that time that I heard on Joe Rogan and it was so relieving to me was Megan Down. And mm. Megan Daum now uh, is the podcaster that does the Unspeakeasy. And so here we are, the uh, Substackers, who were apparently indoctrinated <laughs> by early Adam Carolla. <laughs> so embarrassing. It's so, it's so humiliating <laughs> I that know. it happened this way. <laughs> I know. I haven't even listened to that guy in like 10 years. But I'll tell you what. I I did find his interview style incredibly bracing and interesting. He had a... Howard Stern thing where he could get people to to just sort of spill things. It was his bluntness, his directness. Um, he would just ask anything. I don't know. I, I found him really fascinating. I, I did too. I started listening to him when I was doing my math homework back in high school. And I was listening to Loveline with him and Dr. Drew. And oh, sure. I felt, I felt like I could, if it was math... If it was something with reading or writing, there'd be no way. But with math, I could kind of do the homework while listening to Loveline. I've always been somebody who stays up late at night. And that was a radio show that was unlike any other radio show where people were calling in with real problems, sometimes obviously sexual problems, but addiction was a major was a major theme. Totally. And the aspect of it that was so captivating was how they would interrogate them and often make guesses about them and be correct all the time. And that's what wrote me in was that they had gotten so good at it that they had knew this is going to sound crazy to people who never listen, but they knew if somebody had been molested and when it happened by the tone of their voice. And I was going to say the thing that, yeah. that I remember is how they would be like, they'd sit there and be like, she was molested. Hey, were you molested? Like, you know, and they would always, they did it in a way that was a little bit like, I think it would be wince inducing for a modern audience. But at the time, it was kind of revelatory because this wasn't something that that people ever really talked about. And so, yeah. uh, so many women that called in. Of course, it did give the impression that like 90% of women have been molested. Yeah. Well, there was a selection bias, I suppose. There was a selection um, bias on Loveline. Yeah. By the way, I did Loveline when Blackout came out. Oh, I did not know this. I wish I yes. had discovered this. Yeah. Oh, what was that like? Uh, it was really wild. Um, you know, Adam Carolla wasn't doing it anymore, but but Drew Pinsky was, and I I went into their studio, and I think it's like somewhere in like Burbank, maybe I, I can't remember. But the wild thing I remember, I don't know if this is family friendly. Can I say dirty? No, you, thing? Can, you can say you can say anything. This is the House Substack. of Strauss. Everything goes. Yeah, anything yeah. goes. Yeah. Um. So I was sitting there in the waiting room waiting to go on and they had these call-ins and there was this guy that had called in. <laughs> so, so, like we had gotten to a point where the problems on Loveline were so esoteric and strange. This guy's mm -hmm. problem was that he could only go down on his girlfriend when she was having her period. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was just like, everything about this has blown my mind. And I, I, I don't know. And I didn't know if it was a troll. They treated it yeah. very sincerely. And I was just like, what is happening on Loveline in 20, you know, 16? Actually, I, I should uh, tell you that my book did come out in 2015. 
Oh, God. I knew I'd screw up something like that. You know I what you it. probably did? You probably looked it up on Amazon and it has the yes. paperback dates. That's that's what happened. Or I just can't remember numbers because I never developed uh, the ability because I listened to Love Lime while doing my math homework in high school. Exactly. Um, that's a really that, good point. But Ethan, I have a question for you. Why yes. do I matter? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> I listened to last week's episode and I heard that there was going to be a very strong nut graph here. Uh, <laughs> Why do I matter? I just found your book mesmerizing and I wanted to talk about it. And my basic thesis with my website is that if I'm interested in something, I can make other people interested in something. Um, that that spark can go somewhere. And I know that it doesn't always work out, but I'm absolutely drawing dead if I'm disinterested in what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so even if you wouldn't classically fit in to some of the topics that we deal with uh, on House of Strauss, and you're not really of the sports world, though you kind of are sneakily. And you've got this weird, you've got tentacles into the uh, Dallas sports radio scene, which maybe we'll talk I do. about. I do. We um, should. Yeah, I would like I, to talk I, I about I know that. the least amount of sports for someone that is often featured on sports radio. Um, and um, I find that I have a lot of good guy friends that are super into sports. <clears throat> you know, I think there's something about... There's some interesting overlapping Venn diagram of like intellectually curious pop culture junkie, um, you know, anti-conversationalist, funny, you know, this is like the Bill Simmons model of sports fan. Mm. And I, I, I think it took me a long time to realize you know, because I grew up in the 80s in Dallas, which is such a sports town. Um, but it was very like jocks versus normies or like mm. jocks versus indie musicians. Like all my guy friends were like indie rockers. And that because it was the 90s. Um, and then as I got older, I was like, oh, you guys are like into sports. Oh, OK, so that's cool. All right. I didn't know that we mm. didn't. Um, but I've found like a really good friend of mine is a sports radio guy. And he told me once that sports are soap operas for men. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Everything makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's something that Dan Lebertard would say a lot out in Miami that it's, it's soap operas for men now. Yeah. What do, what do I make of that? I mean, it's, you know, what's funny is that the biggest sports talk host in America uh, ESPN's biggest TV star, Stephen A. Smith. Not only does he perform the soap opera for men, but he's a massive soap opera fan. And mm. he loves General Hospital. And he loves it so much that he is a recurring character on it, which he does for free, just out of his spare oh, wow. time and inclination. Uh, because he is such a... That's how my wife knows about him. She knows of, knows of him as Brick from GH. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, everybody Brick. else in my life kn Brick. knows him as Stephen A. Smith. I love soap opera names. Brick. <laughs> um, He's a surveillance expert. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You know, um, 
I don't watch soap operas proper anymore. I don't even know if they're still on. Um, a lot of the soap opera energy has been transferred into reality TV for women. So it's mm-hmm. a lot of the same, the, the kind of conversations that you used to see around Young and the Restless, General Hospital, All My Children, those were my jams when I was younger. That's all around sort of like The Bachelor or Love is Blind or... Um, Real Housewives or whatever. There is a hunger to watch other people's emotional drama uh, and then talk about it. It gives some distance. You know, in the same way that I think sports allows you to have the victory and Mm. bitter defeat without ever leaving your couch. uh, You know, these dramas play out for primarily women to speak in broad stereotypes because obviously men watch them too and women watch sports. Um, but I was going to ask, uh, is your, is this primarily a dude podcast? <laughs> what do you mean by a dude podcast as far as I know, I mean, like, listening? is it mostly, are, are, you, are your subscribers mostly men? Oh yeah. There's about 103% male, uh, audience. Oh, okay. It's about, you know, no, there are, I sometimes say that and then I'll have a few subscribers write in and, and they go, I am indeed a woman and I, I am a subscriber and I, I like it for this or that reason. But um, this is one of the things, I think one of the ways I differentiated myself was actually admitting this. I think that there is a bit of denial when it comes to the sports industry where they want to pretend like it's more, what, what's the term I'm looking for? Gender diverse than it is in terms yeah. of fandom. And yeah. it was always funny. It was always funny to me because the NHL recently put out some stat that 40% of our fans are women. And I'm just going... There's no, no way. fucking way. No way. <laughs> There's no, no fucking way. way. That's like 30% of those women are being dragged to those to those games by their boyfriend. That's yeah, no, there's just, just no way. It, um it, it, and I would add quickly, I don't want to hear what you're going to say, um but I would look up sometimes the main Twitter the main journalists or the main newsbreakers for the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, they all have over 90% male followings. And so mm-hmm. I don't know what the actual breakdown is, but I think that there's a bit of a there, there's a bit of a denial on how tilted it is. Well, there's no question that that women do follow sports. And over the years, I've been dinged by various women for, you know, because I, I like to speak in broad stereotypes, not because I like broad stereotypes, but because it's easier for communication. And, yeah. you know, it's generally true. And plenty of women have told me like, oh, no, I like football. I like basketball. Fair enough. Fine and fair. All I'm going to tell you is that uh, the sports podcasting sports radio world is like a very dude dominated genre from the outside. And so what I was going to say was I wanted to make a bid for myself, for my own Mm. relevance with this podcast, because I think that drinking, first of all, I think drinking is one of the great leisure drugs that's ever known, been known to man. Um, But most of us have a complicated relationship with it. And, you know, mine happens to be more complicated than most. And it's about blackout drinking. And it's, you know, my book was specifically about women and drinking um, which I have other reasons why I think men should be aware of that. You know, uh, my book was like very specifically for women and it is about 40% men who read it huh. because I drank like a dude. Uh, a lot of my story is about trying to hang with dudes and and the weird place where nature doesn't play fair. You know, where there is, yeah. y- you can, you know, this is one of the, the frustrating things I've tried to get out there is this idea that, you know, gender equality of opportunity or whatever, 
it shouldn't be confused with equality of biology. You know, like there are very specific things that make women more vulnerable to drinking too much. I came of age in a world where women were trying to prove their mettle and their toughness by uh, matching men drink for drink. I was one of them. But because of the way that I drank, my book has been, you know, of interest to a lot of male readers. And, you know, I think the subject of drinking, uh, if you can, like, taking it away from the big bombshell question of, like, what is alcoholism and all that, we can talk about that. That's interesting. But just the role of drinking in our lives, um, I think, is is so important, especially for a bunch of sports fans, because sports and drinking have such a strong overlap. Mm. You know what's stupid about me? I didn't even think about that when we were going to do this interview. I didn't even mm. think about that nexus, which is now, as you say it, oh my God, that's so obvious. If people get together, they get drunk. Um, I went over to my neighbor's house to watch Niners playoff games. And when a touchdown was scored, uh, there'd be a shot poured out of Sailor Jerry that they would distribute to to everyone. And What's Sailor they, Jerry? I don't, I have no idea. I mean, is they, that a brand? Fr- I, I actually have no clue. They're all friends oh. from SDSU. They've got oh, their own okay. references. They've got their own references. Oh, okay. They've got their own college thing they went through. And I, I just go, okay, I guess this is the thing that you poured into the thing. Um, maybe it's a real brand. I, we'll oh, we'll look Captain, into it. Yeah, it's like Captain Morgan. It's like Captain Morgan. Okay, so that's what Maze. Good, good note for Maze. It is a real brand. It was not made up by neighbor Desmond. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it, it, that is that is such an obvious connection point that I did not even think about. I think part of it is that this is going to sound so elitist, but I've been really separated from the world of fans for a long time until I quit my job. And, you know, I'm describing that to you like it's so novel that I was at my neighbors watching football as people do. And but that's just not generally that's so interesting. That's like I know a lot of movie critics and they don't watch movies with with audiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're outside of the world. People are hitting me up right now. Uh, because the Warriors are in the playoffs and they're making a run and they're going like, oh, can I get tickets? How do I get tickets? What are some good deals on tickets? And I'm just I was always outside the ticket world. I, I just I had my my credential and I would get into the arena, but I wasn't part of I wasn't part of the fan thing. You know, you go through the back door, you you're just you're just separated and you're disconnected from how people are actually enjoying the game. And you're also not supposed to drink at all, too. That's the big no-no. I think uh, in the 1970s. In the yeah, 1970s it was, de- it was could, definitely different. Yeah. It was yeah. definitely a different scene in the sports world then. In the journalism world then. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think as recently as some of the times you were describing, and I oh, still yeah. remember it a little bit, even at Salon.com, which is funny to think about, but they had the you know, the cooler filled with whatever and Friday people would drink. I don't think they'd get crazy, but that was part of the thing. Um, and I think in sports journalism, you were expected to be a hard drinking, hard smoking kind of dude. And yes, dude, I think it was all dudes, (laughs) maybe until Jackie McMullen showed up in the 1980s. Um, And sometimes I would look back on that, even though I never lived through it and I would be very jealous of it. And I would go, Oh, it would be fun to just, 
you know, because it's anxiety. It's a lot of anxiety sometimes to be in the arena with all the sound, feeling like I've got to figure out a way to put something together based on this thing people care about. Oh, 100%. That's what drinking was for me, was to quiet that anxiety. Yeah, which I, I didn't know. The picture of that didn't become full until I read your memoir that, because I don't, I, I'm not an alcoholic. I've got my own, we all have our own stuff, but I never got it. I never understood it. I didn't know what people were seeking and doing it. And yeah. now that I see that for so many people, it's about quelling anxiety. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. Anxiety is terrible. Yeah, there's a great quote by Jen Didion at the start of, I think, Blue Nights, where she says, you know, alcohol is a questionable drug for depression, but it is the greatest anti-anxiety drug known to man. Mm. Meaning yeah. that, you know, as a drug, alcohol is, it can make you less depressed, but it's also a depressant. It has like a, what is it called? Like, like it does both. Um, it's a depressant and a stimulant. But mm. it is an amazing anti-anxiety. And, and a number of people, I mean, you know, I think the reasons that people drink and the literature on how they become alcoholic, you know, which is alcoholic is, again, this, this is bombshell phrase that people use and it always feels so othering. Uh, I don't mind. I use it on myself for myself. You know, but when I'm talking to people, they sort of have this thing of like, oh, but I'm not an alcoholic. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't care. It's not my, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, it's a self-diagnosis. You know, it's, it's, hmm. it's, it's, it's not what the medical establishment uses. They use something called substance use disorder and they, they look at alcohol um, use on a spectrum. Alcoholism is something that comes out of the 12 step movement. Um, you know, it's really like, are you an alcoholic and do you want to go to AA? And, and that's all about sort of, it's like declaring yourself a vegan. Like somebody else can't declare you a vegan. Like you, if you are, you okay, fine. Um, but so, you know, so much of like when I started my book, it was probably around 2000. So I quit drinking in 2010. When yeah. did you start at Salon? I think around then. Yeah, I think um, so too. I think, I think it was definitely Obama early term. I remember I was there around when Obama's first 100 days were going on. So that would have okay. been 2000, 2008. that would have been 2009. Um, yeah. And by the you way, know, I, you yeah. described yourself as this pipsqueak intern. Can I just say that, that you, uh, I had a lot of interns that I worked with. There was like this rotating door of interns and you were definitely from the beginning. It was like, Oh, this kid is like a big star. Like I wasn't saying that, like, like your mentors and stuff were saying that. And, and I was like, mm -hmm predisposed to dislike you because i don't like any uppity 22 year old that comes in and has what well, gets a byline it's like who's this <laughs> asshole but uh you were just absolutely wonderful to work with so easy to work with and so Aww. yeah and then plus you use your pretentious middle name ah, yeah i was definitely and that's that's haunted me from there ever after <laughs> where people ask about whether I want to use it or want to not use it. And I just go, just whichever one you choose. I don't even know what I was going for back then. I don't know why. It's not even alliterative, but it felt alliterative. But it yes, does. That, Sherwood that's... Forest. <laughs> Sherwood Forest is um, um, Robin Hood, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what I was doing, but I, I appreciate you saying that. And I think, yeah, maybe there was some ambition because I was trying to get a byline. I had this big vision that I was going to write 
sports and culture that I was going to carve out this space there in what was mostly a political yeah. magazine. Um, and I could carve out a space for sports. And I, around that time, the Tiger Woods fall from grace was happening. And it was one of the first, it was one of these first things, um, that I can remember that seemed driven in part by social media where it felt to me as though everybody was pretending and everybody was acting according to a weird kabuki that somehow they had all agreed upon where they were oh, all interesting. Oh, acting how? Well, they were all very like, disappointed. Oh, how dare he? Yeah, yeah. They were all yeah. disappointed in Tiger Woods and they right. had all agreed with the premise <laughs> right. that he had let them down in some they, capacity. I and, and I remember oh, I'm just watching this and I've got, I've called it a moral Tourette's. I've got this sort of feeling of, I don't know what it is. I just, I don't, I, I, I feel as though sometimes I can't even understand the rhythms I'm supposed to be mirroring. And so I just see everybody doing this dance and I'm going, I don't even understand the dance that's happening. And I feel inclined to say something about it because while that is not best practices for a husband to cheat yeah. on his wife. <laughs> practices. It's not. Yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's also not necessarily our business, and it's also utterly unsurprising. It's oh my oldest, god! It's the oldest page <laughs> ripped out of the sports star playbook. It's like I can't believe a roadbound billionaire cheated on his wife. I, it's just utterly shocking. And I mean, people really need to go back and look at what was being said back then because it was. You know, in a way, it was a far more puritanical type of hysteria than the ones that we have, but it was very similar where everybody is pouring so much emotion often into these parasocial relationships, and he apologized for it, which was insane to me. I mean, there's one person to really apologize to in this case, and to me, that was one of the first instances where I was looking at the sports media being crazy, and I felt as though Salon presented an opportunity to have a conversation about that conversation. And I wrote about it there. And that was my vision was to turn that into my space. Mm. But it, it, it couldn't really work for a variety of reasons. I think Joan Walsh was quite nice about it, but they just, they didn't want to get into all of that. The entire ship was sinking. There were layoffs all the time. Absolutely. It just couldn't be. It's really interesting, though, um, two things that that story makes me think about. One is that, um, you know, I had worked at a magazine called Nerve.com before I got to Salon. Nerve, you probably don't even remember the it was a it was a sex and culture site that the tagline for it was literate smut. And it mm. was, you know, a late 90s brand that stuck around into the aughts um, that had a kind of literary flair for covering things like that. And I'd, I'd worked at a blog that my job was to cover like sex scandals, sex tapes, you know, the, the turn of the century and the early aughts were just like, it was so, the culture was so kind of bankrupt in a weird way. It was a lot of that Paris Hilton mm. and um, yeah. reality TV and, <laughs> and Lindsay Lohan who, I mean, I like her, but like it would be these um like pictures of, Britney Spears vagina would be like stuff yeah, that I would write three about. Of, the three of the three of them, right? It was it, it was. It, it was this triumvirate well, of, you know, um who, like like really who were the three. It was One Lindsay Lohan, like, Paris Hilton, yeah. and and Britney Spears. And they all like basically pulled up their skirts in a photo, if memory serves correctly. So it's unclear now, like now that you roll the tape back, it's like, all right, were those 
like photo opportunities on their part or was that creepy upskirting before we had a name for it? Like, like it's not mm-hmm. clear to me who's the predator and who's the prey in those. <laughs> and I think it wasn't even clear to those women. Like those women were caught in like a heady brew of paparazzi and celebrity and and just and they were young. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And who knows what kind of drugs and booze they were doing. So that's where I had come from. And then I go to Salon and I was so surprised at the serious way they would take things like sex scandals. And like you said, mm. it was a political magazine, but it also I had known it from the late 90s when it was a, a little bit more of a like an early heterodox. Like the idea of Salon was that it would have all sorts of like like yeah. viewpoints and high and low and kind of exactly what you're talking about. There'd be these like big sports culture stories. There'd be these big pop. Like that's when I fell in love with it. And so I come 10 years later and everybody's sort of like in these really strident lanes. Um, and it wasn't just salon. It was, it was the larger culture. I just was, I felt like somebody had switched a light and I didn't know about it. You know, like oh, I thought yeah. we laughed at these things and it was like, Oh no, we don't laugh about this. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going to take it real seriously. Um, (laughs) I do remember thinking Tiger Woods, that story was fascinating because the women were so different from his wife. And the women Uh. were so like, like thump, thump club, uh, (laughs) you know, strippers. And his wife was just like, you know, the classic Instagram perfect model. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I... I think we were at Salon at a time when it was starting to already like lose whatever it had had. Um, yeah. And, uh, but that the thing that you do on House of Strauss that I really do, I don't read you a lot, but I read you more than any other sports blogger. So I can <laughs> give you that. Uh, and when you get into one of these things, especially when you cross movies and sports, uh, and your ability to analyze that. I mean, you know, like I'm in, I love that shit. I think you're fantastic. Oh, well, it's, it's very nice of you to say, and maybe it speaks to my not being as erudite as I should be that I will rely on pop culture, but there's a lot in pop culture. That's one of the things, you know what I really loved? Well, I loved multiple things about your memoir, but one aspect that I especially appreciated was that you were honest that pop culture informed lifestyle choices. 100%. Stuff you saw on TV informed the identity that you were trying to carve out. And I think that there's denial about that for a variety of reasons that we could get into. But it's true that people, they kind of LARP themselves based on what they see on the TV and in music and in magazines. And you were you were just really open about that. I think I might have even... I might have even written down something you said uh, to that to that end, um, and now I'm you know doing a bad job of uh, finding it. And this is great radio slash. Well, let me let me um, talk while wait, you wait, look for that. You got it. Well, I I got it. I got it. Um, I may have found the Hollywood empowerment tales of you go girl drinking to be patronizing, but that doesn't mean that they didn't capture my value system. Uh, that was mm-hmm. one that stuck in my head, um, and so I just really. I really appreciated that you could be honest that the culture does inform some bad choices. I think especially within liberalism or liberal magazines, unless we're talking about how Trump can inspire some guy to be racist, there's not that admission that, yeah, like we we don't want to restrict free speech, but there is this thing that happens that this culture that nobody in particular 
is in charge of does inform how people live their lives. Absolutely. It's so fascinating to me that um, in the circles where I've come of age, which have all been like almost echo chamber liberalism, with the exception for my high school years, which I spent in Dallas. But, you know, it's always been like pop culture changed my life. But there isn't the opposite that like, so pop culture kind of fucked you up too. Like, Mm. Like, obviously, these things are working in tandem. Uh, The movies and the books and the songs, you know, they are a kind of, and this this word is so freighted, so I hesitate to use it, but they are kind of grooming. You know, Mm. they are kind of, like, I grew up watching people smoke and drink. And they smoked and drank from a very young age. You know, especially in the 70s and 80s, those, those kind of ribald tales of the teen sex romp. You know, um, and my mom had given up at some point trying to restrict my R-rated viewing. I mean, it was just kind of like she was a working mom and it was just kind of like I was going to watch whatever I wanted to. And I was watching like Porky's and Animal House and all these things. You go back and watch those. And I'm by the way, I'm a girl watching these. You know, they're not even for me. Uh, They're for young boys to kind of model what it's going to be like when you get to college. What a fucking rager it's going to be how hot the babes are going to be um like how you're going to drink your face off and you're going to be victorious um and then the the line that you quoted from really comes was a reference to the sex in the city era i thought which, so yeah yeah that was a show that i didn't really watch i had kind of a chip on my shoulder about it but at the same time it very much shaped my worldview it reflected my worldview but it shaped the things i mean all of a sudden there's girls happy hours there's all these women in my my circle wanting to drink while they watch tv i used to be the only one drinking and watching tv oh now we're all going to do it together great um there is a kind of conspiratorial uh, booziness that mm. is is telegraphing as cool and sophisticated, urbane, um, and even my overdrinking, which I struggled with from the time that I was in my early twenties, uh, was kind of you know that was material for me to to write stories that were kind of like comic misadventures. Um, yeah. I was willing to admit that, like, uh, I fell off a bar stool. Now, that's the kind of detail that can sound really funny in a story. Yeah. And it's so much less funny when you're my boyfriend mm. that is, you know, next to me having to pick me up off the floor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that was the the kind of cycle I got a little bit caught in was wanting good material, knowing that that was good material, but that that was kind of the good material was was bad for my life and for my not only my relationships but for my my soul and my self-worth but yeah. that took a long time to kind of get all that together because drinking was a way of life for me and it was you know it was the red carpet to adventure and a bigger life which is all i had ever wanted since i was a little girl growing up in dallas going how the fuck did i end up in dallas i should have been yeah. in los angeles i should have been in new york i need to be somebody why did i think that because that's what i was watching <laughs> on the television you know yeah. it, and it was the you know it's the receiver of messages it was my bible you know i didn't read the actual bible <laughs> you know i i watched television and I and I watched The Breakfast Club and I memorized The Breakfast Club. And so, you know, those were my my psalms. 
And yeah. there's a lot of things about those movies that are beautiful and that I love. And then there's also this kind of weird troubling thing of like all these unusually beautiful people drinking themselves and smoking themselves into oblivion. What's that going to do to a generation of kids? Well, let's find out. <laughs> I mean, I think we're not honest about how much of our sense of reality is informed from the TV. And that includes educated people and smart people. We're almost passively taking it in. And it's because I always quote Jurassic Park pretty much every podcast episode. It, it almost reminds me of the frog DNA they use to patch up the gaps in the ancient dinosaur DNA that we're almost looking to kind of patch these gaps in our knowledge. I remember I wasn't a dedicated Sex in the City watcher. I would admit it if I was, but I wasn't. Yeah. But even I had a memory of what that show was like. And I moved to New York City after college. And I remember being in a blizzard and being miserable. I'd grown up in San Diego, and so I was soft weather-wise. And I just remember being in a blizzard. And in New York, the weather's not as bad as, say, in the Midwest or in Boston, but you you walk everywhere, so you're feeling it. And I just remember thinking to myself, I just remember that those ladies were always outside drinking mimosas and it was 70 degrees. I, totally. I feel misled. I feel misled. I somehow absorbed that as my image of New York, which is an occasional image of New York for maybe one month out of the year. Um, but that is not the New York that you are going to live as a reality. And somehow... Part of my move to New York was uh, informed by this passive consumption of my image of the city, which was based on television. Yeah. Well, and by the way, try doing that in four and a half inch stilettos next time. Um, uh, yeah. I'll... It, it's <laughs> The shoes were insane. You know, one of the interesting things about Sex in the City is that it's created by a gay man, Darren Starr. And yeah. it's then the showrunner is a is another gay man named Michael Patrick King. It was created by gay men in the years when gay men didn't really get their own space on television. They weren't going to have a show about four gay men. But if you watch the first season of Sex and the City, I think the show makes a lot more sense if you see those women yeah. as like basically like like avatars for gay men. Because I never knew any. Women in, I think it comes out in 99, it could be 2000, it could be 2001, it's somewhere around there. Yeah. I never knew any women that talked like that when that show came out. Anal sex, rim jobs, like just like this really coarse, um, you know, sexual comparing of notes. But after that show's run, all the women that I knew talked like that. Huh. It was a really wow. interesting way that that show purported to be about women's lives and introduced a behavior that I was never convinced real women were actually doing. If it was, it was a, it was a small subset. And yeah. then actually had them doing it. So it's, you know, Sex and the City, I think it's been a long time since that show's been on the air. It's really hard to remember what a profound effect it had, especially on women's lives and women's programming. Um, you know, I didn't watch it that much, but you didn't have to watch it to participate in it. Everybody yeah. was talking about it. There were conversations about it. There were arguments about it. It influenced the style. It influenced freaking the Cosmo. The, the, the cocktail, the Cosmo was suddenly everywhere at the clubs where I went. Everybody's drinks were pink. And it's mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, one of the things that my book looks at it has like a short chapter up front, you know, it's primarily a memoir, but it has like a short chapter up front of journalism. And one of the things it looks at is tracking the rise in women's drinking. You know, women's drinking is really only 
a story that booms over the last 20 years. Because what happened is that alcohol marketers discovered that they were ignoring half the world's population. And maybe that was a bad idea. And they start doing things like having flavored vodkas, pink drinks, you know, uh, sort of, you know, mommy juice and girly, you know, things that are that are they all sound like stereotypical pink aisle bullshit. And you know what? They work. Mm. Um, a lot of liquor advertising. If you go back to those, do you ever look at like old Playboys? I'm not trying to bust you or anything. I know you're a married man. I'm saying for for <laughs> magazine purposes, for archival purposes. I would love to look at an old Playboy, but I have not. Sadly, no. You got to order one because they're amazing. First of all, they're fat as a phone book. They were making so much money. You go through the advertising in those. Uh, I interviewed one of the photo editors at at Playboy for uh, my podcast on the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. And and he was saying that they called the ads boobs and butts. Hmm. And it's oh booze, boobs and butts. Hmm. So it's liquor, cigarettes, uh, and just cleavage all the time. But all of liquor was marketed to men. Beer was marketed to men. There would be things like wine coolers. And the story of wine's popularity in America is primarily a story of women discovering it. Because you go back to Mad Men and they're not drinking wine. There's like a scene where Betty Draper is like, I have this new thing. It's called wine. And they're like, what? Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Nobody was drinking wine. So the explosion of wine, the explosion of flavored vodkas, all of these things lead to a rise in women drinking, which really changes party culture. It changes bar culture. And, and you know, and I think controversially, uh, I I draw a line between that and the things like the Me Too movement in 2017 and the campus sexual assault movement in 2010. You know, I got dinged a lot when my book came out for including alcohol in the conversation about sexual assault, but I thought it was germane. Mm. Well, how did you get dinged? Well, I had, um, it's very like directly the word rape apologist would be, Jeez. um, you know, because a lot of my work was around, blackouts and what women uh, said but didn't forget. You know, this is going to take us into probably more like darker territory than we want to necessarily tread. Um, But, you know, blackouts and specifically women's blackout drinking, you know, that's a really large number of the campus sexual assault cases that were coming out from 2010 onward. I say 2010 because that's when Obama sent a letter to I'm, I'm sorry, it's 2011. Yeah. Uh, he sent a letter um, that basically said, you know... It's a dear colleague letter? The, it's the dear colleague it? letter. Colleges yeah. need to start taking sexual assault seriously under Title IX, or they will lose federal funding. And it kind of creates hey, this and- scramble for colleges to change the way they adjudicate this. Until then, it had just sort of been like, you do you, you know? Yeah. You kids figure well, it out. It- was it Emily Offie who caught a bunch of heat writing about um, because she was favoring, she was saying, hey, young women in college, this puts you in a vulnerable position to be completely black blackout drinking and it increases the risk something would happen to you. Now, I looked at that the way I would look at 
advisories when I went to college because there was a lot of property crime around where, you know, where I went to college. And it was mostly men getting robbed because men were more likely to be walking by themselves at midnight to 1 a.m. Right. But it's, hey, you know, there's there's a warning that you don't want to be in that situation because something could potentially happen to you. But it wasn't then taken as not blaming somebody who would rob somebody. But it seemed like that was the reaction to the Yaffe piece, it was this idea of, well, she's victim blaming. That's how I remember it from yeah, all those years I, ago. A hundred percent. Yeah. Victim blamer is the other one that I would get a lot. Um, I was sober. I had quit drinking in 2010 and I was sober when the Emily Yaffe piece came out. And so I was spending a lot of time in 12-step recovery rooms, you know, thinking about my own role in things, what I had done, what I needed to take responsibility for. And I was hearing a lot of stories, a lot, a lot, a lot of stories about women talking about sex, sex that they wish they hadn't consented to, sex that they didn't remember. And so it was very odd to me to see that Emily Yaffe piece come out. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, her tone sounds kind of scoldy, but like, you know, because she's not a drinker. And I think it's hard mm. when you're not a drinker to make that critique. But um, but I was like, this is totally reasonable. And then to see the like lion's roar, like I can't tell you how many yeah. times over those years I would read something and be like, that's pretty reasonable. And then it would like you'd see the, the <laughs> like the backlash. I would say a, po- a positive correlation between those things. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm clearly this unreasonable person. Like, I, I, you know, but that was around the time I was starting to think about writing my book. And I was like, oh, I can't write my book. You know, like I because mm. I couldn't write about my drinking life without talking about sex and 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 blackout and and that was going to have total overlap with this sexual assault conversation the only way i knew to kind of get through it and this is what i've done most of my career is to keep it very very focused on myself i'm not an advice mm. giver i'm not interested in telling other people what to do i'm interested in being able to open the cabinet doors of my life and let you rummage around so that you can figure out whether any of this is useful to you and you know i am very willing to do that uh, my drinking life was something that I didn't have a lot of embarrassment about. I had been writing about it all along. This wasn't um, the only thing that was a surprise to people was how much pain I was in. Nobody was surprised hmm. I was a big drinker. I wrote about it all the time. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, just coughing. Uh, but I mean, one of the most arresting parts of your book is when you talk about your first experience. I believe you were 13 years old in it. And in the audio version of the book, you literally have a recording you made describing it to a friend at that age, back when whatever year it was, maybe 1989, I I, I believe is what it was. Yeah, it would have been 88. It would have been the summer of 88. Yeah. So I... Yeah, it's, I'm so glad you listened to the audio version of it because um, because that's a little Easter egg in there uh, yeah. to have the audio of me. I, I do the audiobook, and then I knew I had this tape of myself at 13, and I realized that we could use it in the book. I have to say, I've personally never listened to it. I find it very, very difficult to listen to myself at 13, um, even when we were in that recording studio, and I had to play it for the, like, big deadhead sound engineer, you know, I was just like, I'm sorry, yeah. sir. This is me at 13. Like, no, I don't sound 13. Cause I'm saying like, Oh, like I'm talking all tough. And, and it it's mm. just like, Oh kid. 
Um, but my heart goes out to that young woman who was trying so hard to make sense of something that had happened. Um, I started drinking at a very young age. Uh, I started stealing sips of beer from my mom's half drunk cans when I was about six or seven years old. I didn't know so much what it was, only that I loved it. I think certain people do have the genetics for drinking. That's not yeah. the only card you get dealt. There's a lot of different cards you get dealt. Um, but that's a that's a very strong one. And I'm Irish and Finnish, which is yeah. pretty much Ooh. a champion race dog of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh border collie crossed with an Australian shepherd as far as dog problem solving. I don't know. It's stupid. You had a better analogy. No, I don't know. I, I don't know dogs, so a, I'm out. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, yeah. I loved drinking. I loved beer. This is something that is, you know, we were talking about how women don't love like sports and and a lot of women ding me for that because they do. Well, I used to always hear women hate beer and I was like that's not true. I love beer. Mm -hmm. But it is I was an outlier. It was very unusual yeah. amongst my friends and I just loved the taste of beer. Um but I really didn't start drinking socially. Um I got drunk once when I was 10, almost 11. I, I should also say that I was very precocious in many ways. I mean, the 70s and 80s were about this sort of like, you wanted to be older. You wanted mm. to be a teenager. I wanted to skip past my child. I didn't want to be a kid. I wanted to be a teenager because they were having fun. My older cousins were older, so I kind of hung out with them, pretended to be like them. Um, but, you know, I also was the first kid in class to hit puberty. Like I looked older. I was reading above my age. I, I had a precocious personality. Anyway, I was 13. My cousin was 18. And I was hanging out with them one summer. And I had never been kissed by a boy. I got kissed by a boy. That was so exciting. He was 18. I didn't think that seemed creepy. I thought that sound, sounded freaking awesome. <laughs> like, I tell stories about this now. And people are like, oh, my God, that's so... That's so scary. And I'm like, no, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, it's very hard to imprint one generation with the cultural assumptions of an earlier generation. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and you know, of course, the later generation would find that creepy because they would realize that's probably too much age. That's gonna end in trouble. And it did. It did. Um, it, it ended in a, in a confusing sexual experience that, that was very profound for me, um, to have that summer be the first summer I had been kissed. And then we went from zero to 90 really fast. And I spent a lot of years wondering, like, did I do that? Did it happen to me? Was I raped? Was I not raped? I mean, it, it was, you know, it, it's so interesting because during the years that Blackout came out, and this has been a few years now. But there was this thing going on in the culture where I think a lot of women were kind of running the recorder on their past and saying, you know, well, like, was that rape? And I've heard people on other podcasts talk about this and say, like, well, that's ridiculous. Wouldn't you know if you were raped? But the thing is, is that the definition of rape was expanding. And at the same time, certain assumptions that had been made in earlier generations, it was like, oh, well, maybe, it, you know. Maybe it's not so clear. And it turns out to be a very squishy di uh, not definition. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I wanted to revisit that girl at 13. You know, I can hear in that audio the one time I played it um, 
the creation of her toughness because I was a very mm. sensitive child. I cried easily. Uh, if my mom had to describe me in one word, it would be sensitive. And if she was going to describe my brother in one word, it was independent. And I hated that his word was independent mm. and my word was sensitive. <laughs> I was like, I hate my yeah. word. <laughs> and I wanted to be tough. I ha- my older cousin was this foxy tomboy and she hung out with the boys and she played soccer and she was just so cool. And I wanted to be like that and drink was a kind of armor. But I don't think it's just that for women. I think it's that for men completely. Yeah. I mean, everybody's trying to prove themselves in a way. I, I found that Easter egg uh, in the audio to be very emotionally affecting. There's just something, there's something, there's just something to that that's almost indescribable. It, it actually, it transported me back to hearing something similar. There was this, this American Life episode might have come out around 2008. It was a long time ago, but it was about breakups. And mm. one of the one of the segments in the show was this this uh, little girl calls up a New York public radio show because they're talking about marriages or divorces, and she her parents are getting divorced, and she's. Um, She's she's asking she's asking the radio hosts about it and he's guiding her through it. And then we transport to what she's like today. And she's an adult mm-hmm. teacher and she's she's hearing it for uh for the first time. And um I felt something similar in it where to toggle from your voice, which you know, I was kind of toggling already between reading it and mm-hmm. listening to it, but it's your voice the whole time. And then suddenly it's you, but it's not you. And it's back then. And you're inventing in that moment who you're going to be, uh, who you're going to become. And yeah. I, I'm struck. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I'm just struggling talking about it now. It's just very affecting. Mm. Because you have a, do you think it's because you have a child? I think that informs it. Um, I think that's part of it, but I also just think for whatever reason, there's something about that, that, that connects something about time. Yeah. I mean, the, your, your book is almost like a Linklater movie, you know, it, mm. it, it, mm-hmm. it's so, <clears throat> it's so granularly <clears throat> descriptive of what it was like in the 1980s in suburban Texas and yeah. it, it might as well be called girlhood, you know, and there's something yes. about, <laughs> there's something about that. And there's something about that, uh, journey from vulnerability to adulthood that when it's rendered so clearly is just going to connect with, with me. And I, I would imagine that there are other people as well. Writing can be a kind of time travel and, And the memoir can do that. You know, it can take you through things that spent, I mean, it, that, that book was hard one, right? It came out when I was 40 years old. So that had been a good 30 years of living that life that I talk about in that book, but you can telescope that time and leapfrog. I'm going to mix three different metaphors. It's Um, okay. Do it. Yeah. That's what I do. Uh, (laughs) Leapfrog through those decades with people and just kind of traveling over it, you know? And the audio is is a cool one because I think we're used to pictures that do that. Here's me as a baby. Here's me as an adult. Look at that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You can see the facial, you know, but we're not used to the voice doing that. Yeah. And the voice 
carries a lot of information. You know, we're telling people a lot of things about ourselves when we open our mouths. It's one of the reasons why I love audio is because you get all this information about a person without ever seeing what they look like. Um, and it's, it's so expressive. It's so intimate. Um, and so to be locked in on one voice and to dip back in time to a voice that's 27 years younger, uh, is pretty wild, but, uh, I'm I'm so glad that that was moving to you. I love that men read this book. I've certainly heard from so many men over the years that do see their own story in it. To me, that's so encouraging because I, I really sort of detest the ideological moment of like, only, like, I can only relate to people that are like me. Like, I personally don't want to just read books by women. I grew up reading books by men, books about men, and I saw myself in their struggles. My early books that I was obsessed with were The Outsiders. Well, that's written by women, so that's a bad example. Um, but Stand By Me, the, the movie, um, I was obsessed with. It's a bunch of boys. But I saw myself in in their stories. And, and I think, you know, I want... You know, I think one of the amazing things that literature can do is dissolve those gender and color barriers. But it feels like we're not quite there yet. We're in a moment where we're just sort of obsessed with those gender and color barriers. And so, I, you know, I know, I understand representation matters. I understand all that stuff. But but I think men are just as capable as empathizing with a female protagonist and and character as they are with a man. And, And maybe in some ways... It might work easier because it's not a direct, direct, you know, like maybe with a male protagonist, you're sort of feeling competitive. Like I didn't do that. I, you know, but, but with somebody else, you can hear a story differently. Mm. Yeah. I think that there, there is something there's, it just, it works differently. There's a fascination as long as it's true. That's the thing I believe if it is, I'm a big believer in this idea that the more specific something is, the easier to relate to it is, which is paradoxical. But it just tends to be so. And I've got this powerful memory of when I was a kid and I, I went to this aftercare. Um, and it, it was just uh, – it was pretty casual. And it was after elementary school. I might have been nine or, or ten years old. And um, they it was a Christian aftercare. And they would go across the street to the church to do Christmas pageant stuff. I don't know. My dad didn't want me doing it because, because I'm not Christian. So I would just kind of be there by myself and I would read uh, these books on the mm. shelf while there was one counselor kind of there to, to just sort of observe me. And I remember finding, are you there, God? It's me, <gasps> Margaret. Yeah. And it was just mind-blowing to me. Oh, Because it was this yeah, – it was uh, – I mean, how do you even describe it? It's a coming of age – for those who do not know, it's a coming-of-age story for a young girl as she reaches puberty and – if you're a 10-year-old boy, it was just, this is crazy. This is fascinating. And maybe if I was a young girl, it would have been fascinating in this more personalized way. But for me, it was more this kind of, I mean, what do we even, what do we even avoid? Would you say voyeuristic? I'm not sure, but it was transportation to a world I would never understand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it inducts you into a world in which you will never actually belong i mean you are getting to follow along on the early rites of passage 
for a young girl who, you know, a lot of that is about getting boobs, uh, getting your period, you know, going through adolescence. And it's uh, y- your timing is great in bringing that up because it's a new movie. Did you know that? Ah, I I did not know that. Yeah, it's a it's a new movie and it's supposed to be really good. And a lot of my friends are talking about it. I mean, it's a it's a very beloved Judy Bloom book. I always thought it was interesting that more boys didn't read those books because I thought they contained all the secrets. It seemed like That's boys went felt. to Playboy or Hustler or something like that. They were like, give me the secrets, which are mostly just secrets <laughs> written by men. And, yeah. and 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 they were like, ah, I don't want that girly stuff. But those books, you know, the Judy Bloom books and then, you know, it's the same way. I don't understand why guys don't go to yoga because it's like all these beautiful <laughs> women in tight clothing. I I just don't understand it. I mean, there are a lot of things like that. I would tell my single friends uh, all the time that you should get a dog because yeah. that's a way 100%. to strike up conversations with women outside of an app, outside of a bar. You're already passing this test of taking care of something and seeming like a responsible, decent guy. And I was saying this in part because um, this doesn't happen anymore now that I'm you know, out in the suburbs and have a very uh, routinized life, but... I would just be talking to random women all the time, had no real use for it because I was right. a girlfriend to marriage path. But I was just thinking, you know, you guys should probably be getting in on this. But, you know, of course they wouldn't. They didn't want to take care of the dog. They didn't want to deal with it. But, <laughs> hey, I mean, that's to each his own. But yeah, to each to, to each his own. Um, yeah, I definitely I remember because I was only 10, but there was even something in me back then reading that. That was saying, oh, well, she's having this crush on this guy. How might I be the object of something uh, like so this? <laughs> there so was something, also, there was your, something to that. Your yeah. story about um, not being able to participate in the Christmas songs or whatever, pageant, whatever that was. And then going into your little book nook and reading books. I mean, that never happened to me, but I have similar stories like that. <clears throat> and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's so true. This weird space, this this weird phenomenon where the more specific you get in the stories, the more people see their own story inside of those details. Um, mm. And it's, I don't know why it happens, but it does. Um, but I, I have so many memories of being in this sort of little book nook and pulling, pulling random books off the shelf. And by the way, you also made me think about Judy Bloom's book, Then Again, Maybe I won't, which was her book about boyhood coming of age, which was probably mm. where I learned about boners <laughs> and blue balls. I've never read that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there is, it's just so small minded, this idea that I don't want to read a book by blank kind of person. I, I just, I want to read it if it's rendered well as your your book is. And again, there are these aspects to it because I think some people might think this is just about drinking or it's just about alcoholism, but there are all these other little nooks and crannies right there that I recognize, such as we mentioned pop culture earlier, but it's not just pop culture informing what you think you should do, but also as this marker of status. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved, I loved the scene from your book where you're, you're at an was it an alt weekly? Um, it's the Austin Chronicle. The Austin Chronicle. It's very cool, and all of your depictions and descriptions of of working there, I I just loved. But you put up a poster of Rent 
because you think rent is what's cool, but it turns out that by that point, rent is what's cringe. And it's, it's so almost cringe. The ter- it, it's the exact trajectory that Hamilton made, where yes. Hamilton <clears throat> was cool and people are going to deny that it ever was, but it was. It was a perfectly acceptable thing for a cool person to enjoy Hamilton. And then it became cringe. And you can't you can't really like that. And there was a cool guy in the office, a uh, production assistant, yeah. trying to remember the job. And he he kind of very subtly uh, castigates you for having the rent poster up. And so then you self-consciously replace it with a Blade Runner poster. And then when he sees it, he, he goes, that's more like it. And he approves. And that was something that I think isn't spoken about as much. I experienced that as a kid with music because yes. I had no musical taste. Yeah. I don't relate to, I mean, I, everybody likes music. I like music, but I don't have an ear for it. If I go on a jog, I'm more likely to be listening to your audiobook yeah. than I am to be listening to a song. And so I didn't know it was good, but I could tell that there were severe social consequences to listening to what wasn't good. Yeah. And so I had that feeling that you had in the office of, am I supposed to like the offspring? Okay. No, they, yeah, they're great. I, I like the offspring. That's what I'm into. I had grown up a real top 40 junkie and also a musical theater fanatic. And I'd been a drama kid in, in high school and I'd gone to college and kind of like everybody's tastes were so eclectic and different. Nobody was really fronting on anybody else, um, even though it was the 90s. And I definitely was like outside the lane of like, I thought I was not big into like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and any of that stuff. Because again, I'm this like melody junkie, you know, and these guys are just like screaming about their parents' divorce or whatever. <laughs> so I yeah. wasn't into it. <clears throat> but then my first big job out of college is at Austin Chronicle. And and Austin at the time was really like <clears throat> an epicenter of hipster, cool. I mean, it still is, but especially in the 90s because it was sort of under the radar and Slackerville and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I just, I I felt that even though and I was so proud of that little rent poster. I'd gotten it in New York City. <laughs> I was hoping somebody would ask me where I got it. And I would be like, I got it at rent. Because <laughs> I've been to New York City. <laughs> and of course, nobody asked me that question. And I could just feel this sort of like, huh. Okay, <laughs> that's going to be her play. And so then I had a Blade Runner poster. I didn't, I've never even seen the movie Blade Runner. I, I fell asleep. <laughs> Still? <laughs> mm. I've seen it now. It's really good. <clears throat> I approve of that. But uh, at the time, I was always falling asleep during movies, especially the kind of like slow movies because I was always drinking while I was watching movies. Just could not stay awake during them. So I'd seen the first half of Blade Runner like twice, but I never knew what happened. Um, but it was like my roommate's poster and I knew, and everybody always said it was so cool. And I was like, All right, I'm going to put this one up. And it went over great. Uh, nobody ever knew. Um, you know, I think the story of drinking for me was a story of trying to fit, trying to belong in places where I didn't feel that I belonged. One of them was Dallas. One of them was, um, you know, college where I thought everybody was smarter than me. One of them was the alt weekly scene where it just felt like I didn't know nearly as much as everybody else. 
And and then getting to Salon, where I, I feel like it was one of these video games where I felt it was it was like a video game where I felt like I had mastered one level, only to be thrust into the next level, and it to be mm. like, wait, these this doesn't work on the second level. You know, I'm yeah. trying to do the thing I did back at the first level, and I got to learn it all over again. Um, I had to keep learning and adapting. And there's a to to sound trite, but like there was a fundamental failure or inability to accept myself wherever I was, mm. which I think drinking amplified and then later, you know, kind of stuck me in place. Like if you're drinking through all the awkward first dates, if you're drinking through all the anxiety of work, um, you do not get to use the muscles that might help you learn how to navigate doing that without the drink. So by the time I quit drinking at 35 years old, I was sort of like, shit, I don't know how to do anything. I, I, I don't know how to date. I don't know how to write. I don't know how to sit with somebody else and just talk, which is ridiculous because it was the thing that I knew from a young age, like better than anything. Talking. Yeah. And, and, and in a weird way, I feel like that's almost more omnipresent as a problem, but it's medicated yeah. through technology. Yes, that's right. Um, through looking at your phone and I think we all do it to varying degrees, but that, that way of handling it has been, has been replaced with kind of a new, a new methadone as it were. I mean, we could go in so many different directions. Um, I, I'm thinking also just about the other thing I like about your book is that and you in general is that you're kind of a you're you're big on generations. Like some people don't mm. believe in generations and sure. it's bullshit. Sure. You are big on Gen X. Like you I I am there is enormous Gen X energy coming from your book, coming from you and friend of the podcast, Nancy Rommelman's uh yes. Nancy Rommelman's pod. You love Chuck Klosterman, who I'm probably gonna put him on the the Mount Rushmore of Gen X. Uh, 100% <laughs> Gen X people. Um, and I don't even know where I'm really going with that question or that topic other than to say, do you think that 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 we've lost something? As a Gen Xer, looking at my millennial generation, looking at the generations below it, what do you think has been <clears throat> lost versus the generation you came up you came up in for for good and frail? Well, um, you know, it's funny because growing up, I didn't feel a part of Gen X at all. When that that phrase was coined, I was a little bit younger than most of the people. And, you know, Reality Bites came out and it was this thing where you sort of like, <clears throat> you're like, this is supposed to be your life. And you're like, that's not my life at all. That feels really annoying. And so I mm -hmm. never felt associated with that generation until I got old enough for people to be like, what's Gen X? And I was like, oh, you don't know Gen X? <laughs> That's my generation. Um, it's a bit of a forgotten generation. Well, one of the things that I think is really beautiful about Gen Xers is their openness. Um, they sit between the boomers and the millennials in terms of social, uh, cultural issues. So we tend to be pretty open and and progressive, but at the same time, there is an understanding of what that earlier generation brought us, rote memorization or discipline or, you know, a lot of my friends' parents were very strict parents. Um, mm. I had a soft mom. I, I call my mom the, like, first millennial mom 
Because she was like, <laughs> she was very much like in the mold of like, your mom's going to be your best friend kind of thing. And that made her yeah. very unique amongst my my friend circle. Uh, but uh, so many moms are like that now. And I think it's really interesting that I had a lot of anxiety when I got to college, whereas most of my friends were like, fuck yeah. And I think it's because I was so close to my parents. I didn't really want to be separated like that. I wasn't super psyched to get out of the house, which is a little bit new in the American story. For so long, it was like people wanted to get out of their house because it was oppressive. If the the house is really nice, then it's just kind of like, why would you want to leave and be around all these randos that don't know you and don't know how awesome you are? And um, so anyway, you know, I don't know what's been lost. I will say that there is a great humor and uh, a playful way of looking at the world and pop culture. I, check, I think Chuck Klosterman is a, is a great example of that. He was somebody whose conversations always sounded like they were sort of stoner babble mode, but like of your like smartest friend, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and he was a great example of somebody that hundreds of journalists read and were like, I could be that guy. And then like none of us could be, but we all, <laughs> but, but he gives you the impression that it's doable. Um, yeah. I think, I think that there is, I have found a lot of common ground with Gen Zers huh. personally, um, because they seem to be a little bit tired of social media and a little tired of, um, the ideological, the tribal warfare the cultural mm. warfare that's been going on. I mean, that that was something that kind of came, like rose up and took away all the people that I loved. It was like, it was like all these mm. artists that you that you thought were great, they're all problematic. And, you know, it's yeah. just kind of like watching this disappearing screen of, of icons, icons used it, as a double entendre there. And, mm. you know, they're all, they're all leaving because they're all problematic. And, you know, I, I came up at a time when it was sort of like like one of the biggest fights I remember caring about was I was 10 years old and the PMRC, the Parents Musical Resource Center, uh, was this big battle that was being fought by Tipper Gore to get ratings on songs. Do you? This is before your time, but are, are you familiar with this at all? I'm only familiar with it because Eminem would reference it and he would say, fuck oh, yeah. you, Tipper Gore. He which would. Which when I was 12 years... When I was 12 years old, it was a very confusing statement absent any context. So you looked into the context and you go, oh, okay, so this is what that is. Well, I like to think that my first long-form narrative was my sixth grade report on the PMRC, uh, <laughs> which was basically one of these interesting things where, and, and, and you know, looking back, I get it. Like it was these, it was a, it was a collective of concerned parents who felt that Top forty songs had become too raunchy, but I mean, of course we we we've accepted the premise in this podcast that the stuff actually yes. does influence behavior. Yes, exactly, so, yeah. exactly, it does, and and it and it and it does. But you know, there are ways to go about it. Like, how do you want to? How do you want to? What do you want to do about that? And so they had introduced this rating system, but one of the things they did was to to release this sort of like kill list of like all the songs that were supposed to be dirty. And it was basically like this decoder ring to all these songs you didn't even know were about sex. <clears throat> it was like, oh my God, Shebop is about masturbation? Oh, I had no idea. And then <clears throat> I remember like I, I, I got the album 
wasp. We uh, wasp stood for we are sexual perverts, which is just stupid. <laughs> it's just dumb heavy metal stuff. But it was like they got a huge boost in popularity because of this. And so, you know, I grew up watching, you know, that that was PMRC. But then there was also this sort of push from the religious right to to kind of old school cancel various pop musicians and books and and, you know, and and I understood art to be kind of like the lifeblood of you know culture yeah and, and and movies and books and tv and like whether they they harmed you or they, they like all things that you love harm you in some ways yeah. they do and you know but but that's just part of shaping who you are um and so you know gen xers would just fight to the death over God, whether like the Beatles were better than the Rolling Stones or like whether Nirvana or Pearl Jam, you know, it was like really stupid stuff looking back. But um, but we had this fierce belief in art. And I think it was really shocking to watch a younger generation kind of ditch that to the side at scale, <laughs> you know, where it was just like, oh, yeah, we don't need this book. We don't need this guy. We don't need it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Mm. And it felt very cherry picked too, you know. You know, we're not going to look at hip hop. We're just going to look at, uh, you know, old Christmas songs. Now I'm I'm talking about like how "Baby It's Cold Outside" was oh. sort of recast as a oh, that's as a <laughs> date rape song. I mean, was, you know, that that was always the funny thing, right there. I remember, I just remember watching the music video for Kanye's birthday song. Uh, like a decade ago and aesthetically it's an amazing music video but it's also just comically sexist or misogynistic or or, or however you want to put it you know they're literally like eating cake off some woman's ass and it's just it's you'd have to see it it's like a caricature of that sort of thing and i remember thinking to myself watching the music video and thinking yeah, Jezebel's not going to touch this. <laughs> no, no, they're not. They're not. And it, you know, it was it was really confounding to me as, you know, watching this in an old uh, younger generation. I remember being in college and seeing my my friends' sisters from high school come and they were all in this like con- jeep rolling down the street rapping along to Tupac, who I didn't know. I mean, this is 1990 <laughs> Seven, six. So, you know, like I, I wasn't familiar. I'm I'm this musical theater. I'm dancing to rent at my college parties. So, um, and 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 just being like, whoa, what's happening? This is wild that they're saying words I would never say. It shocked me. And then rolling the tape forward 10 years, and that not those same exact girls, because I don't know what they're doing, but the same age yeah. of those girls are writing things about how X, Y, and Z are problematic. And I'm like, how did you grow up with these songs and then come to, I don't even understand what's happening. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of the last few years feeling like a grumpy old woman. Um, and, and it really wasn't until I started hanging out more with, with 20 somethings, uh, and in part because I, I teach a class at UTD, um, University of Texas at Dallas, you know, and saw that there was a lot of 
of common ground between me and and that generation of people um because we're we're kind of on either side of mm. this big millennial group this this overwhelming yeah. millennial group that was responding to so many different things at once i mean a change in parenting a change in culture and a huge change in technology i don't think any of us can really have really get our hands around how the internet has changed us changed the way oh, that we no. communicate changed everything and by the way you mentioned the thing about how uh you know technology becomes a way to kind of mediate anxiety and and not look somebody in the eye or whatever. Uh, I wanted to mention when you said that, you know, drinking is down. Mm. Um, and it's particularly down amongst young people. And it's a really interesting social phenomenon because it seems it's starting to look like peak drinking was around 2010, 2005 to 2010. And what happens right in there? The iPhone comes out. And so That's fascinating. the social center no longer becomes the bar and people start you know socializing from home from you don't need you know for the longest time like i was so frustrated i quit drinking in 2010 which turns out to be peak drinking for me too <laughs> <laughs> but um you know when i quit people would say let's get together and they just meant let's meet at a bar let's 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 get a drink was synonym for let's talk. And yeah. I felt so frustrated because suddenly I'm this person that can't do that. And then do I over explain it? I don't want to make them feel weird. Do I go to the bar and then they don't want to, you know, it's all this sort of like negotiation of other people's needs. It's like when you quit, when you quit eating meat, you don't have to deal with whether or not anybody else does, you know, yeah. it's, it's a personal decision and suddenly it's being adjudicated in this, in this public way. Um, but anyway, over the next 10 and 13 years, what I watched was that that assumption kind of change. You know, people don't work parties don't necessarily take place at bars. Workplaces don't even have open bars and happy hours anymore because they had too many goddamn lawsuits. And, you know, and it, and it felt like it wasn't the right message to send. And so all these things that felt to me like they were endemic to the culture were starting to to weed out. Um, and, and a large part of that was technology, people working from home, people, people dating, you know, finding how else were you going to date back in my day? How were you going to meet somebody if you weren't at the bar? You just talked about a dog park. That's a good idea, but we didn't come up with it back then. We, <laughs> they didn't have dog parks. <laughs> so they didn't have dog parks in Dallas in no, the nineties. They didn't. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. That's a that's a twenty first century addition to this city. Um, if I'm wrong, you can tell me. But I think that's right. I mean, I think I think it was one of those things that 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 cool urban centers had. And it wasn't until the 21st century that places like Dallas were like, oh, wow, young people want to go hang out, drink beer and play with their dogs together. That's interesting. We should do that. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't have known where to meet people if it hadn't been the bar. I don't just mean people to date. I mean, people to hang out with people. You know what? It's it was the it was the center spoke of the wheel. And now the center spoke of the wheel is the phone. Well, and you mentioned in journalism, especially that it was part of the lore yes. that the, these newspapers, they all had the bar that and there is this romance that you depict so wonderfully of being this kind of pirate 
I sometimes call it a carny when I'm talking about it in the context of the NBA mm. where you're not living according to everybody else's rhythms. You're not on the mm. nine to five. Yeah. And so it seemed like it was all tied in to that, that particular lifestyle the bar was. It was to me, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things that I miss about drinking. I don't actually miss the actual drinking. I miss the camaraderie of those spaces and going to a bar, this sort of dim lit. It did. I always did feel like it was like a cave, a ca mm -hmm. you know, cause they, a lot of those bars, there's no windows and you can't tell if it's daylight or night. And it's just, those were my favorite. They were like, always cool inside and like these duct tape vinyl boots and you'd slide in there and light up your cig and chain smoke. Everybody was smoking back then. Um, you'd go home. Oh my God. You'd go home and like, I'd open my purse the next day and like a plume of smoke would come out. <laughs> it's just like so much smoking. You had to smoke just because everybody else was smoking. It was disgusting. But anyway, um, and, and, I felt as though I was in a fabled tradition of drinking writers. You know, um, I, I there are so many journalists that fit this mold that I know now. But back then, I would have thought of myself more in the mold of of late 20th century novelists. Um, mm. The sort of uh, Updike and Cheever and Raymond Carver... And, um, you know, to, to go back, you know, you're Hemingway and Fitzgerald. I mean, just like any, like, young, ambitious, arrogant, over-involved 20-something. Like, I had all these grandiose delusions of being a great American writer. And so the drink becomes so wrapped up in that. It almost seems like it's a job requirement. And it's certainly true that if you do it, or when I did it, I wasn't getting the very typical like, oh, Sarah, you need to do better. You can't be hungover at work. It was like, okay, go home. You're hungover. Come back tomorrow. Yeah. And and I like your carny thing because I think it is. They were like a little bit like, like white collar carnies or something like that. Yeah. Because... Because there is this thing of operating outside the the lines. You know, I, I remember when I went to the Daily Texan, the daily newspaper at the University of Texas where I went to school in Austin. And I walked down into this basement and there were these two pale guys chain smoking in the little stairwell right next to a sign that said, where GPAs go to die. And it just was this sort of romantic idea of like, we're going to throw away our lives yeah, and, and we're going to give everything we have to this sort of strange journey. Um, the, they were, they were daily beat reporters. You know, I, I didn't come from that world. I, I, I moved up through the entertainment arm, which is like, definitely like the, the leisure class uh, training wheels version of journalism, you know, because you're getting to go to like free concerts and, you know, you're interviewing celebrities. It's like the total soft focus version. Um, yeah. And I remember the sports guys too. The sports guys were like really in it. They were always like super involved, super engaged. 
yeah, I guess the entertainment office is really the slackers of that mm. outfit. I'm but fascinated anyway, by yeah. Oh, oh, I just I just was gonna say uh drinking. Oh, the other thing about if you're a bunch of socially awkward people like that, that kind of have trouble making co- eye contact in daylight, alcohol is going to be like a really, really helpful fix for you. Like it's going to ease yeah. all the social edges off of you because because journalists and writers in general do tend to be like both oversensitive and awkward around other people. Yeah, um, it's a thinky profession i mean yep. something i'm drawn to in these descriptions and you've been very generous with your time but i just keep thinking of more and more questions and reasons why i love i love the book um it's you really capture the kind of sensory pleasures that people affix to their addictions and you yeah. do it so vividly and you do it even when describing sneaking sips of pearl light when you were 7 years old and just what it did to your brain, the ritual of it, the the taste of it. And there's something about that concept I'm so I'm so fascinated by. I mean, I'm I'm remembering in old school when Will Ferrell's Frank the Tank character after doing the beer bong screams, it's so good when it hits your lips. It's that <laughs> have you thought about that a lot? Like this thing that happens where a chemical attraction to something can make us think it has these glorious properties it doesn't have inherently. I'm not being articulate with any kind of question other than this is going to be a weird place to take it. But I just remember I have a friend, he's gay, and he was trying to describe to me why men are inherently more attractive than women, just like objectively. They're objectively more attractive than women are. And I'm going, dude, it's just you've got a chemical kind of like this this is what sex is to you and you've got a chemical attraction to men right and if you have a chemical attraction to women you're going to see this as objectivity but it's just the chemistry in our minds and there's something to that that i can't stop just noodling with in my head of this this weird thing we do where we start to because we've got a chemical connection to something we see a romance in it that maybe it just would not have otherwise Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I think that I had a deep abiding romance with booze. And the only reason I didn't call my book Drinking a Love Story is because that was taken. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I love that title. It's a Carolyn Knapp book from 1997. But I remember seeing it and being like, oh, that's my story, whatever it is. Because for me, it was a great love story. And it had all those sensory details the the richness of the malt the sting of the scotch um and and because i saw it as such release from i guess maybe the prison of my own mind or like the prison of my day you know like that it it contained this unwinding or uncoarsening yeah. i i would often say you know because out in the world i'd have to be kind of like you know together and 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 you know maybe i was wearing like a bra that that like dug into my rib cage and like heels that hurt my feet and you know be really nice to everybody and then you would get home and it was just kind of like yeah and to associate that with a smell or with a taste 
you know, it's wordless, right? And it just, it would just transport me. And, and I, it took me a long time to realize that my longing was for two things. It was kind of the first sip and then to never be able to stop. Like I, I never wanted just one drink. You know, I would say to myself, let me just have a sip because I just want the first sip. And then it would be like, oh, but that that was never enough. And then one drink was never enough. And, you know, there's a saying in, in AA that's something like, you know, I've, what is it? It's like one drink is too many and 10 is never enough or it's something. You get the point. You know, yeah. that basically I was one of these drinkers that what they call the phenomenon of craving, which was a a phrase that I didn't know before I read the big book, which was really interesting. And it's basically that there are certain genetic dispositions that kind of like ignite when they get alcohol. And it creates a kind of intense craving that you don't have. So I know people that have like one or two drinks and they're done. And I'm like, how did you, how did you even do that? Because to me, two drinks was going to be like, I could, I mean, like I was, I would be physically uncomfortable. I, 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 I would have to go, like if I were at a bar and somebody had two drinks, I'd have to like stop for a six pack on the way home. Cause I couldn't, I had, I needed to keep going. And mm. the physical discomfort is part of, again, there's no litmus test for alcoholism, but it's one of the things that you look at when you look at certain red flags for who has problems. Um, and the thing about the phenomenon of craving is, you know, this this exists for a lot of drinkers. It's not unique to alcoholics. Alcohol generally recommends itself as, you know, for more alcohol. Oh, like I used to have this great. New Yorker, I used to have this New Yorker cartoon up that that was this woman at dinner and she was like, this bottle of wine has put me in the mood for more another bottle of wine, which, you know, that was my life for a long time. I, I, I love this idea of alcohol as almost a Dick Cheney-esque figure who goes, you know, who should be vice president is, totally. uh, is me. Totally. <laughs> totally. No, alcohol is the worst pitch man too, because think about it. Alcohol is like, you know what you'd look really good doing? Dancing. You know what you should do? Sing karaoke songs loudly. And, you know, all this stuff that is so freeing and fun, but it's it's so interesting that your physical mastery is in counterpoint to your willingness to do it. You know, like the yeah. slopper you get, the dumber you get, the more you're like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I loved karaoke. I still love karaoke. I have not learned to dance very well as a sober person, but I'm going to. I'm determined to do it. Um. God, Do you just, dance, Ethan? Too, no, I'm a terror. I, I actually have a memory of doing the first dance at my wedding and being overcome with the realization that people in a circle were looking at us. And I think we might have even cut it short. I'm um, <clears throat> I'm not somebody who's comfortable in my own skin. I, mm. I have a sort of um, gangly awkwardness. And I, I never know what my hands are doing. I don't mm. really have a good sense of rhythm. It just doesn't it just doesn't work. It would be nice to be one of those people. But the other thing I have going for me is that I don't think alcohol does anything for me or does much for me to put me into that mood. It yeah. really doesn't do much for me in general. One of the reasons why I'm fascinated by your book is that I don't have that kind of chemical attraction to it. Wait, I, you're Jewish, right? Yeah. 
I, I, I'm I'm not trying to pigeonhole you. I'm just telling you, I can't tell you the number of Jewish friends of mine who are just like, I don't get it. I don't get the drinking thing. It's not it. it y'all do not have the gene. <laughs> and, I have and some it's not it, culturally. It's not. I mean, I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm not saying Jewish people never drink, but like, I don't think they binge drink the way yeah. that wasps do. Yeah, and there is something interesting where all my Jewish friends seem to be able to keep their shit together with <laughs> drinking. Well, it's certainly so when it comes to my family and extended family where the drinking problems are in the non-Jewish parts of it. And I think that there is something to it. Now, I have we all, I think, lean on our anxiety ameliorators and I had that a little bit with weed where it started to become at different points in my life, a little bit of a crutch, a little bit of a, oh, when I get done with everything at night, you know, it's this way to unwind. And then it slowly starts to tunnel its way more and more so into your life. And so I think that we often have those things, but chemically booze just wasn't that. And that made it so... I just feel the bad sides of it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, uh, (laughs) there really is something about a sort of chemical latch, you know, like for me, it was drinking a hundred percent. And because of that, I never went out and looked at uh, at drugs. Like I, 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 from the beginning, I was like, I'm a lush. That's all I am. I, I, I'm like dated my high school girlfriend, you know, I'm just like, not, not nobody Mm. else. Don't need anybody else. I never liked pot. It made me paranoid. It made me very uncomfortable. And then I had a boyfriend who just like pot fixed him. You know, it was the chemical latch. And, you know, and then for some people it's, I don't know what else, you know, some people have, you know, maybe it's MDMA, maybe it's, what the hell else do people do? It's not going to be, I'm not going to say heroin. These days. Oh, you they know, do opiates? Uh, well, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Increasingly. Um, I think, I, I mean, eventually I have to let you, I could ask you questions about this for hours, but I think eventually we both need to pee. Um, it's true. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm just also so into this kind of, that culture of fuck up and this sort of romance to it. And mm. what do you feel going back, looking back at the people who were kind of at a girl in you or maybe found it funny when you were not living a healthy lifestyle. And in some way, like you said, there is a camaraderie to it. You know, do you feel any particular way to those people like forgive them father for they know not what they do or that they were just seeking something themselves or that, you know, there was something in the culture that was saying you should cheer on people, which is a whole thing that we could spend a whole podcast on as to why it's culturally fashionable to cheer bad, bad behavior. Uh, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I I feel very grateful for them because they laughed at my jokes. I mean, <laughs> I'm a, like an attention junkie and <laughs> I... I felt loved and celebrated and supported by them at the time. I was hiding my pain from them. Uh, Several of my friends at certain points, you know, because I did this thing where like, I'd be like the funny drunk until I got to a certain point of the night and then I would start crying. And I'd usually start crying about the guy that didn't love me or the guy that had just broken up with me. 
And so it got pretty tiresome for my friends. Like they can do a couple of those rounds. And then like the third time you're doing it on their couch, they're like, wow. Um, between, yeah, can what's going on? Um, but those friends were so loving to me. And I do think there was something in the culture. I also think that if I do say myself, so myself, I was pretty good at hiding my bullshit. Mm. And I would try to think back, like if somebody had come up to me and been like, you know, I can tell that you're you're joking and you're hiding your pain. I would have been like, fuck off. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really am a believer that people come to these things when they need them. Like, I, I feel like I needed all those years of doing that. And I'm lucky that I survived them. Um, you know, I had a bad habit of falling downstairs and it was actually, you know, I had a concussion. I went into the emergency room once and I busted up my knee and my knee still is messed up. And, um, you know, I make some jokes about that in the book, but it's really quite serious that I, I like falling down a flight of metal brace stairs is, is no joke. And, um, you know, I feel lucky that I, that I got through that, uh, I feel lucky that my eyes opened, that the drinking wasn't serving me. Um, and, you know, I, I it was interesting. So you were talking um, on your last podcast about, um, you said the funniest, you said the funniest thing. I wonder if you remember saying it, where you go, um, you know, I'm going to have Sarah Happel on my show. I'm really interested. I want to talk about turning your disaster <laughs> writing about your life when your life was a disaster and i was like that is really funny um the one thing i want to say about that is i didn't experience my life as a disaster i had moments of disastrousness and mm. and you know one of the things that a memoir does is it kind of pulls on one thread you know so so it just tugs one thread i'm not telling you about all the other stuff in my life cuz my life was quite successful in other ways but one of the things I wanted to explore was somebody that from the outside wouldn't look like your typical alcoholic problem drinker. I mean, I looked like in so many ways, like I was triumphing and I, and, and I actually was, it's not like, oh, it was all a lie. It was like, I was doing what a lot of people do, which was hiding the uncomfortable parts that didn't fit the narrative of triumph. And yeah. You know, and I was, most people don't talk about their horrible mornings that they spent unable to figure out like, where they were the night before or like throwing up in the toilet. Like that's just not something you bring to your, to your colleagues at work. And if anybody did, it was going to be me. I made jokes about it. And I, I'm so grateful that those people were on my path and, and gave me companionship at the time. And those are the same people that embraced me when I came back and said, I have a problem. And they were like, yeah, we figured, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's strange to put out a story about your the darkest parts of your life um because people know it before they meet me and mm. and that part kind of freaks me out like as a general rule I don't care but like if I go on a date it's a little bit disconcerting or like teaching my class um because there's a lot of like racy scenes of me like the book opens up with me having sex with a guy in Paris that I don't know who he is which is yeah. a pretty wild fucking story because I was coming yeah. out of a blackout and I couldn't remember how we met. And, you know, and and it's sort of like when I wrote that, I was like, I don't care. And then now I'm teaching these 18 year olds and I'm like, don't read my book. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't, it's not appropriate. Cool. Um, but anyway, it's um, it's, you know, it's it's nice because 
people feel like they can tell me their stories. And what I learn from their stories is that my story is not that unusual. I think, yeah, that would, that would make a lot of sense that there would be something so gratifying in, in that kind of connection, for being honest. I, I'm sorry that I, I called your life a disaster. In, oh my gosh, it was so, me. I laughed so hard because, <laughs> because it's probably the way that a lot of people, so I, I like hearing people when they're not being careful, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. Also, I feel really comfortable with my life. And even if it were a disaster, um, I mean, I also think that that the memoir in in particular requires you to be disastrous on the page, whether or not your life actually looks like that. That's kind of what I was trying to get at, because I don't believe your life to be a disaster. (laughs) Um, you know, in fairness to me, how was I to know that a public podcast would be listened to by other people? How could you know? Um, how could you know? How could I know? Uh, it's my running assumption that nobody listens to this. So I, I didn't know. Um, but it's more this weird dynamic of the more of a disaster you portray, the more captivating well, that's it right. will be. Yes. And it's your own life. And yes. your book, and I think you've been humble about it, was an enormous success. And so how do you process all of that? And that yeah. would be the, the final question. Yeah. No, I, I I knew even when you were asking the question uh, on the previous podcast that you were pushing into something that is actually really fascinating. And it's, it's that basically I was rewarded culturally and monetarily for some of this horrible behavior um, that I monetized bad behavior. Now, I also did something else, which was to try to turn it into art, to try to comfort others. There's all sorts of things going on. But there is something funny in the brain. And I have wondered as I've gotten older, you know, I'm I'm now sober 12 years, but and I put away the booze, but I didn't necessarily put away the drama. And, Mm. you know, there's a lot about my dating life over the last few years that it's I've just there have been moments when I'm like, is my addiction to like emotional highs and lows because mm. because so many of this like like suddenly it wasn't like will he you know will i go to the liquor store it was like will he text me and and it wasn't like can i ever drink again it was like why did he leave me and the it was just the highs and lows of it were so operatic that i was like you need to get a hold of yourself and you need to get buddhism or something because mm. there was something in me that was so primed for drama. And I don't know where that comes from. You know, is that the little girl that's still trying to get attention? Is that somebody that's watching too many movies? Is that someone that has been rewarded for that drama for so many years that she just sees it as material? I don't know. But it was wearing me down, the 48-year-old woman that had to go I'm always the person that goes to bed with me, you know, like Mm. I always lie in that bed and I was having trouble with it. And, you know, I think as you start to get older, especially as a memoir writer, you start to think like, boy, I don't know how many more like, like clattering episodes I have in my past. And I will say I'm finishing up my second memoir now. It's about being single in my forties and not having children. Although I had wanted both of those things. I had thought that I was going to be married. I had thought that I was going to have kids and I didn't. And it's kind of interrogating, like what were the personal choices I made? What were the cultural um, shifts that were moving me in that direction? What were the things I didn't control at all? And, you know, 
I want to take a break <laughs> from writing about myself when I'm done with this. Mm. I want to write about other people. I want to write about other lives. I want to use the skills I have at openness and articulating certain emotional states to help people that might not have those tell their story because I need to get out of my own head and my own ass for a little while. I'm, I tend to be, I love writing about myself. It's, it's my, it's kind of like my first love language, maybe. <laughs> um, it's where I went for sort of like understanding and, and, you know, when I was young and, 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 lonely and and didn't have anywhere else to turn but i think that there is so much more to be written about um and so so i'm excited for those things but yeah i mean i think that you've actually identified um a moral problem in the genre and and it also it also rewards uh the amplification of trauma and grief like um mm. and every bat like bad things become worse uh, through the amplification of sometimes of writing about them. Now that's not all that the the genre does. I, I, I think that memoir tends to be a derided genre and I will fight for it, but that is definitely like one of its weak spots. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, you don't necessarily need to, amplify things no. you just again need to describe things and maybe another time we'll get into how you were able to do it on such a granular level i'm going to assume you you kept diaries I, I i don't know it had that sidaris quality of how do you recall this detail from this long ago yeah i mean i do have i do have journals but not a lot of them um a lot of pictures and um and then uh, I, I have a pretty good memory, but it's very faulty. You know, I shared pages with everybody in my life and was like, does this sound right? Because like I'm relying on this like totally faulty recorder thing that, that you know, I, I probably have an over-reliance on. There's this other aspect uh, that I'm drawn to, and I don't necessarily do in my own writing, but I really respect it. It's that I remember... I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I remember uh, Michael Chabon was once saying that if you're uncomfortable sharing something that you're writing, it's probably good writing. Mm. And I find that in your work where you're sharing some things about yourself that I think, you know, I, some people would not want to share because it, it wouldn't be flattering. And the yeah. genre you're talking about where people are heightening the disaster aspect – a lot of it, I do think, was kind of managed in a way, like a big humble brag, where they're not mm -hmm. actually sharing the shit. They're not actually okay. sharing the shit that you wouldn't want to share. I mean, I have this memory. There's uh, David Shields. Um, he, I don't know whatever happened to him, but he wrote a few books, and he was a really interesting guy. And he would overshare in just the weirdest way. He wrote this yeah. book about following the Seattle supersonic season and I think around 1994 and just really meditating on the, the, the weird tensions and racial tensions and NBA fandom. And he writes this scene of fantasizing about himself as a 25 year old Gary Payton as he's having sex with his wife. Mm. And I, I just remember being blown away by it and going at some level, I, I have like a total lack of respect for that. And then another level, I have immense respect for that. And I probably sure. have more respect for it. I, I have probably more respect for it, the lack of respect, because 
that is such a thing to confess, but there's a reason we don't confess such things. And so what do you think about that of when it's too far or is there some sort of is there some sort of reason not to um, the the yeah. the overshoot? I think it's I think it's bold. I think it's ballsy when I see it, but there's a reason a lot of people don't go there. There's a reason that it is ballsy. Well, it's funny. Um, well, I grew up with a. My mother was training to be a therapist when I was younger, and <clears throat> then she became a therapist. <clears throat> a lot of my coming of age years, or, or my mother, sort of asking me how I felt and wanting to know what was going on in my mind. And, and so I just, from an early age, I had this total comfort with telling people about my interior, you know, because she was never mm-hmm. judging that. And, and so I didn't maybe get the guardrails um, that other people did. Now I was shy and very much a people pleaser. So it's not like I behaved like that out in the world, but I could be that way in my writing. And you know, so it's just very comfortable to me. It's it's always, and I can't tell you the number of people that have come up to me and said some version of, oh my God, I would never write this. Or you're so brave to put this out there. Or uh, I would die if like my daughter wrote this or something, you know, and I'm, I'm always thinking mm. like, what is the passage that they're thinking about? You know, because there's so many things I didn't put in there, you know, and <laughs> Uh, I think you want the piece, you want a piece of writing to feel like you're not holding back, but you don't want a piece of writing to feel like you're giving everything because the everything is too much. It's too much. It's overwhelming. I have a higher tolerance than most for that kind of like, like Tourette's confessional kind of a writer that will tell you everything, including like their masturbation habits and like, like the person they thought about what they were coming, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. That's really interesting. I didn't know that, but I think it derails from the story. A lot of times I don't, I, I don't know that it adds. And so in a lot of these details, I'm looking at like, does this add to the story that I'm trying to tell, which is this larger romance with alcohol and then why I had to walk away from it. So I'm looking at whether these details serve the story or not. Um, there are times when disclosure is not appropriate. You know, you don't want to break the stream of some intense conversation with somebody else or, you know, um, it's just, it's just a tool that you have like anything else you can use it, but it can be abused. And, um, you know, but I wanted the book to feel like a long, unbroken converse, like late night conversation with somebody where you were like smoking a bunch of cigarettes and drinking or drinking coffee or whatever. And everybody was kind of telling the truth of what their lives were like. Um, and so that was the feeling I was trying to create. And I think I'm just aware that that's a skill that I have, like for every writer, you have to figure out like what you can do that other people can't do. Because I'm not like I came up to the entertainment world and I was not encyclopedic like my peers. Like I was not as good of a critic. The the people that I was working with, they knew books and movies and, and TV, all of it much better than I did. But one of the things that I could do was write these personal narratives that had this snap and, and people found them very relatable. And it was like, oh, I can do this thing that other people don't seem to be able to do as well, which is interesting. 
Yeah. And, you know, so one of the things that I know that I can do is share details about my life and not feel very embarrassed. Um, I'm not saying there's nothing in that book that embarrasses me, but honestly, there's not. I mean, the parts that are the hardest for me are the parts that are you'd think that's weird. It's like how upset I was about my cat dying. Like I didn't want to put that in there. And then my friend who was a reader, you know, because I have people reading my books and then they're giving me feedback. And I just wanted to like skip over it because I was like, ah, fucking dead cat. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And and he was like, no, you've got to like pause here and like and, and, you know, I I hate it. There are certain passages that when I was reading the audio book, like I was clawing into my hands (laughs) to kind of keep myself calm. And that whole passage, you know. It's just, you know, I was really, really attached to an animal and I lost him and and it feels so small, but it felt so big to me. And I never was sure that the words, you know, conveyed that um, because it was such a trope, the kind of dead animal thing. So anyway, um, yeah, that's the stuff that embarrasses me more than like fucking a guy in a in a Paris hotel room because because that. I, and I think part of this is the drinking. And I think this is why drinking gets so wrapped up in the sexual experience for so many people is that it feels like, oh, that wasn't me. I was just drinking. So if it goes mm. badly, you're like, ah, I was just drunk. Um, well, but if you want something, you're like, oh, I'll drink. And then maybe maybe something will happen. And if you're ambivalent, you're like, why don't we drink and see what happens? So it's a kind of like throw the dice up in the air and see what you get. And, you know, it's like, obviously, I wouldn't be doing that if I hadn't been blackout drunk in Paris. But then in the second memoir that I'm doing now, I'm sober through most of it. And I have to reckon with the fact that I still do a lot of stupid shit sober. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's also hard to know what's a risky thing to reveal. Yeah. And it seems like you might not even have an awareness of what it would be to most people because Nancy Rommelman, for instance, I think cited a passage yes. that you wrote and said, I could never write that. Um, I thought that and- was so funny and also weirdly revealing of my pod partner, Nancy. Um, <laughs> I had written a story for The Cut about sober sex, and I had a line about when I was first getting sober and I was so freaked out by intimacy and sex. And I, I had something about like blowjobs freaked me out. Like you actually put a penis in your mouth, but how? You know, and I I just thought like that's a 13 year old girl's like classic. Like everybody thought that at 13. I just happened to be 35 at the time. Um, and and she was like, Oh, I would never write this. And I was like, Really? That's so interesting to me. It's it's it would not have struck me. Like when I wrote that, I did not think that was such a frank disclosure. But for her, yeah. for whatever reason, maybe because I'm much older than 13, um, that that struck her. And and usually uh, we all have different areas where we just feel so tender to the touch, you know, and then when somebody touches it, you're like, oh, God, I wouldn't have done that. But there you go. Um, I, I told you I teach a memoir class. And for the longest time, I was super, super sensitive about the fact that I grew up talking to myself all the time, kind of like making up imaginary characters in my head and talking about it. I never told anybody. And like at 30 
I don't know, like 37 or something. I told a therapist, you know, I was just like, I've been talking to myself for years. And she's like, I think a lot of people do that. And I was like, no, yeah, I, do, I do it uniquely. And she was like, I don't <laughs> think so. And all these kids in my class, not all these, but like three different kids have written basically essays about that. And I'm like, oh, that's so brave. You know, Because for <laughs> me, I couldn't admit that for whatever reason. I thought it meant that I was weird or that I was like, you know, unusually lonely or unusually strange or whatever. So um, it, it it's just people have different no-fly zones. Yeah, it's interesting. I can see it from both perspectives. I can see it from Nancy's perspective and I understand why it's a risky reveal. And if, even if I can't articulate it, I just know why. Mm -hmm. But I can also see it from your perspective as to why it would be inobvious. But uh, this has been... Fantastic. And I thank you for being so generous with your time and uh, being willing to recapitulate a book that you wrote how many years ago? How do I do math? Again, we're circling yeah. back to the fact that I didn't learn how to do math because of Loveline. Because of um, Loveline. But, but you learned yeah. the, the deep <laughs> secrets of human nature. As yes. revealed by Drew Pinsky and Adam Corolla. <laughs> um, yeah, I wrote it eight years ago and I'm so touched that, you know, it still has relevancy and and that people still read it and they still find it. And I still find the themes and the ideas of that fascinating. I find the drinking story, drinking in American culture to be a fascinating story. So I'm I'm so happy to come on your podcast. And I also think this is another little chink. Um, can you say chink, chink? Uh, a sub sack we can okay. we can say anything you, okay. you can do but anyway i think this is a little like 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 metal for me in my attempt to take over the sports radio <laughs> and podcasting space we talked about no sports <laughs> how is this That's a path what I'm gonna power do. for you it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit of a wrench that i'm throwing to the sports listeners they're gonna be like okay. uh there's no sports in these sports podcasts i'm like that's my thing i'm the no sports girl um but i do love uh sports podcasters and radio personalities i found out about uh, the fact that you talked about my podcast because somebody on the ticket here in dallas uh, is a listener of your show, Dan McDowell, oh. and he told me about oh. it. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it's cool, um, to know that those guys in that world listen to you and you come from my salon world and <laughs> eventually I'm going to watch a sports game. <laughs> eventually. And then you'll have to get back to us. Which one should I thoughts? start with? How this is okay. I keep trying to wrap this thing up, but I'm the thing where you know all these people in Dallas sports talk radio and don't watch any sports is about as strange as my career trajectory after starting at salon.com of all places. But we'll we'll unpack and untangle all of that in another episode because we will have to have you back. Oh, um, I love it. It's so fun talking what, to you. Plug what you want to plug, and then I will do the customary awkward and uh outro where i never quite know how to end the thing oh good um well i do a podcast with my pod partner nancy rommelman um and that is called smoke em if you got them and it's about it's like a weekly podcast on what's burning through the culture and i also have a website sarahapola.com and i'm a writer at large for texas monthly and i freelance for plenty of other publications and i'll have a book called unattached coming out one of these days I look forward to reading that when that comes out. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. Bye.